Hello, everyone. We would love your feedback on conversations at the perimeter. Let us know what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. Go to perimeterinstitute.ca slash podcast survey to share your thoughts. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Conversations at the Perimeter. I'm Lauren, and I'm joined by Colin. Hey. And we are so thrilled to bring you this conversation today with Nobel laureate Sir Anthony Leggett. Sir Anthony works in the fields of condensed matter physics and quantum mechanics, and he won the 2003 Nobel Prize for his groundbreaking work on superfluidity, which he tells us about in this conversation. Sir Anthony, who honestly prefers to just be called Tony, Tony tells us about his lifetime in science, his formative experiences in the developing world, and the pros and occasional cons of winning a Nobel Prize. And using some very helpful metaphors, he helped me understand why high temperature superconductivity is such a sought after goal in fundamental physics. I was so excited to talk to Tony because he truly is a legend in the field of quantum matter, which is my field of research as well. And during my graduate studies, I studied superconductivity, and I remember how much I struggled to form a simple picture in my head of what electrons are doing within a superconductor. So during this conversation, I just kept wishing I could have talked to Tony back then because I know his metaphors would have helped me. <laughs> yeah, I, I first met Tony about 12 years ago when he was a regular summer lecturer at the nearby Institute for Quantum Computing. And I was immediately struck by his kindness and his brilliance and his real ability to help other people understand really complicated subjects. And this conversation only reinforced those first impressions. So I'm really excited for our listeners to get to know him. So let's step inside the perimeter with Sir Anthony Leggett. Sir Anthony Leggett, we are so happy to have you visiting us here at Perimeter Institute today, and we're so thrilled that we get to chat with you for Conversations at the Perimeter. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. I know that you've visited Waterloo many times, but it's been a few years, so can you just tell us what it's like to be back? Oh, it's a, a very pleasant feeling. I really enjoyed my time um, working here in Waterloo. And um, I'm just sorry that I couldn't visit more often over the last five years for various reasons. Um, but uh, it, it's interesting to see uh, how the uh, town, particularly in this area, has, uh, has changed. Um, just very, very glad to be back. What are the biggest changes that you've noticed? I think probably the railway. Um, mm. When I was uh, last here, the railway was um, under construction. It wasn't running, but it nevertheless made, made a huge nuisance to getting around town. <laughs> and uh, uh, that now seems to have been uh, completed. And uh, and so everything is seems much more normal and pleasant uh, in this particular uh, area. I remember for years, um, many years in a row, you came to the Institute for Quantum Computing to yes. teach a summer talk. And I would, I would see you. I worked there for a number of years myself. And I would see you arrive on your bicycle. Yes. and uh, go home on your bicycle and I remember the chaos that the construction caused so I'm, I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm glad to, uh, I'm glad the construction is behind us yes, can you tell us what it was you were doing at the Institute for Quantum Computing um, that's actually a good question and I really I think the uh, most accurate statement is that I was trying to learn about the current developments in quantum information mm. 
mm-hmm. because uh, while, while I have a, a certain history in the area of quantum foundations, I missed out on the early developments in the quantum information revolution and um, uh, was only too uh, anxious to uh, pick them up from uh, what was obviously the world's leading place in this area. That's funny that you came to learn and every summer students would come to learn from you. You hosted a series of talks and I remember they were highly popular and sought after. So I guess it was a two-way street. Yes, well, I think I tried to um, uh, put across some of the things I'd picked up in condensed matter physics, mm-hmm. which was not something at that time at least in which the IQC uh, was primarily specialised. And on the, on the other hand, uh, I was trying to gain the latest, latest developments in quantum information. You know, in preparing for today, I was trying to think what kind of questions can I ask you that really kind of encompass a lot of the different types of work that you have done. And um, one thing I thought about is that a lot of your work really relies on systems being at very low temperatures. Yes, so indeed. could you tell us what is so special about low temperatures? Yes. Um, well, basically, um, I think it was put rather well by Cameling Honours, um, who's in some sense the father of low temperature physics as we know it today. Um, When he got the uh, Nobel um, Prize, um, and I think it was probably in 1914, thereabouts, but sometime around then, he um, said, among other things, that um, by going to low temperatures, we draw away the veil, I think he called it, that um, at ordinary um, temperatures, noise draws over the um, phenomena predicted, I don't think he actually said predicted by quantum mechanics because the whole idea of quantum mechanics was only just being born at that time, Mm -hmm. but by uh, by microscopic physics or something of that kind. (laughs) So so basically, um, by going to low temperatures, um, you get rid of a lot of the noise which is irrelevant to the real phenomena you're trying to study, in this case, particularly quantum, quantum mechanical phenomena. When you say noise, I think a lot of us think of a sound, a very loud yes. sound, but that's not what we're talking about necessarily. Uh, it's a general concept. Can, can you explain um, what noise is and why low temperatures eliminate yes. it? Yeah. Noise is, well, basically um, anything you're not interested in. <laughs> and <laughs> that sounds right. Generally speaking, that if you're studying a particular system, say a set of atoms, what you're not interested in is going to be random effects coming from the environment. Crudely speaking, the magnitude of these random effects is proportional to the temperature. So if you go to low enough temperatures, you um, get rid of of most of it. And people nowadays uh, have got extremely good at devising means, first of all, getting to low temperatures, but when you're at low temperatures, shielding out anything that's left And you've already sort of alluded to this, but I think um, in the past and maybe still sometimes today, people tend to associate quantum physics with effects at the microscopic level. But a lot of your work has shown that we can see quantum effects at the macroscopic level and with our own eyes. Can you tell us about some of those effects that you've studied and what makes them quantum? Sure. 
I think one only has to distinguish between two different meanings of the words quantum mechanical effects at the macroscopic level. One kind of effect, which we've actually known about for a long time, is uh, when you have a large number of microscopic entities, let us say um, atoms or helium atoms, for example, and uh, for one reason or another, uh, they are all constrained at sufficiently low temperatures, they're all constrained to be behaving in exactly the same way at the same time. And you can see what this means by an analogy. Suppose that I'm on a mountaintop and looking down at the main square of a city below the mountain. And first of all, suppose it's a market day when um, all the citizens are just going about their business, and their business, of course, is different in each case. And so looking down from this great height, it's very difficult for me to see what any particular one of them is doing. But now suppose it's not the market day, but it's the day of a military parade. Now, then you have a whole squad of soldiers uh, marching exactly in lockstep, all doing exactly the same thing at the same time. Much easier to determine what it is that they're commonly doing. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty much like that with the atoms or electrons or pairs of electrons. The most um, spectacular um, effects of this nature are probably those associated with superfluidity or superconductivity. In the case of um, superconductivity, for example, it means something like the following. Suppose that I take this is a, this is actually a demonstration which I uh, do quite frequently at the farmers' market in about <laughs> um, for school children and so forth. What you do is you take a, a simple copper tube maybe this kind of radius. And uh, first of all, just to show the kids that uh, there's nothing at all suspicious or weird about the tube, we just take a pebble and drop it down and it just goes down, right? Um, then next, you take a little magnet and you um, try to drop it down. And of course, it does not drop instantaneously. It takes a few seconds to do it. And you explain to the kids that this is because the um, magnet as it falls, it's inducing an electric current circulating around the uh, tube. This in turn is, is producing a magnetic field which tends to sustain the magnet. So it does fall down, but, but the currents, although they're generated by the falling magnet, they uh, tend to die away. And as they die away, the magnet can fall further and so on and so forth. Um, and then you ask the kids what they expect to happen if for some reason the currents never did die away but just kept on circulating and some of them may come up with the answer, well, then the magnet is never going to come out of the bottom of the tube. It's just going to hang there forever. And then you show them that if I take a pellet of um, yttrium barium copper oxide, one of the so-called high-temperature superconductors, I um, uh, dunk it in liquid nitrogen and then I take a little magnet and try to lower it onto the pellet, then it will not fall. It will just stay there suspended until eventually, of course, the, uh, if I don't keep pouring nitrogen, the nitrogen will uh, boil away. Um, the YBCO, this compound, just revert to its normal state and then indeed the magnet will fall down. 
But then I told them one, uh, one further subtlety. Okay, let's imagine I don't, uh, don't do the experiment that way round, as it were. What I'm going to do this time is to first take the, uh, the little pellet, metal pellet um, in the normal phase, so at room temperature. I'll place the magnet on top of it. And now I'm going to pour liquid nitrogen on it so that it will cool down into the superconducting phase. Then what do you expect to happen? It's pretty difficult, actually. I don't think people usually guess this right. <laughs> what, if I do the experiment right, and it does take a little um, manipulation, but um, if I do it correctly, then what will happen is that as the pellet goes superconducting, the uh, magnet will actually lift off spontaneously and just sort of hang there in midair. I mean, unfortunately, it's not too easy to do that experiment with um, large magnets. They're usually pretty tiny, so you have to squint fairly hard to see what's going on. But nevertheless, it's quite spectacular to see this thing lifting off spontaneously. How do children tend to react to seeing this experiment? <laughs> They're fascinated, usually. <laughs> you must get all kinds of reactions. Yes, yes. And, and this is a, something you say you do fairly often to Well, demonstrate. before the pandemic, yes. Before I used to um, volunteer for, for the physics department's slot at the farmer's market um, a couple of times every full semester. Really. Mm -hmm. Why is it that you like to do those demonstrations for, for young people? As, um, a, as a professor, you're probably typically speaking to to university age people. Yeah, but, um, but it gets them fascinated with um, physics, and I, I think that's uh, it's always worthwhile. Do you think that those kind of demonstrations are able to convey an understanding of superconductivity even to young children? <laughs> well, probably not, to be honest. <laughs> um, in fact, I, I say probably not because I've actually, um, for the last few years, I've been teaching a course at Shanghai Jiao Tong University in China where I have a visiting appointment. And this course is to third or fourth year undergraduates, physics majors. And I've done everything that I can possibly think of to really convey an understanding of superconductivity in what I think is relatively simple language. It never works. They always <laughs> complain it's much too hard for an advanced form. Um, and I, you know, these are not dumb students. I mean, they're pretty smart. And, mm -hmm. But nevertheless, um, it does seem rather hard to get across the, the true essentials. I think it's rather easy to give, as it were, a slick and rather misleading picture of, of superconductivity, but to actually convey what I think is the essence is, is pretty tricky. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Speaking of explaining superconductivity to children, we were going to wait until a little later to ask children's questions, but there's one specifically that we received from a, a young student named uh, Demir, and I'm wondering if we could play that because it's very much on this subject. Hi, my name is Demir, and I'm in grade 8. Why is superconductivity important in our lives today other than our MRI machines? Do you think oh. they have a hidden use? I already, um, uh, superconductors are being used for, I don't know what the right word is, but in the United States, um, there are three major power grids. And it's very important um, to be able to um, switch um, power from one grid, which may be overloaded, to another one, which has sufficient current carrying ability. I'm told there is a um, particular place somewhere down in Texas um, which brings the three grids together and therefore is able to switch 
car between them. Now, if you do this with a um, just, just using ordinary metals, which are not superconducting, then uh, one problem is that I think the device itself may overload and uh, cause a catastrophic failure mm-hmm. in the grid. However, if you have a superconductor, it has the interesting property. If you try to drive to higher current through it, it will just revert to its normal phase and therefore no longer be superconducting. So you, it's an automatic limiting feature. And as I say, this right now is being used in the technical device in Texas, but uh, but in future, I think there's every prospect it may be used for long-distance um, current carrying. Uh, and uh, <laughs> that'll have uh, the additional and very important benefit that as long as the metal stays superconducting, no power is going to be dissipated in the transmission itself. Today, something like 10% of all the power, electrical power, which is produced, um, let us say, in a coal-fired power station or a nuclear power station or whatever, 10% of it gets lost on on transmission to the place of use, which might be um, ordinary um, domestic housing. If we can, in fact, find superconductors, which are remain superconducting at reasonable, say, at room temperature, and are sufficiently, importantly, are sufficiently cheap to make, then uh, they will dissipate no power. We will save 10% of all the power produced, and that's not by any means a trivial thing. Yeah, especially yeah. at times when there are energy crises and... Yeah. Uh, mm. And growing populations. Can you tell us what what is the hurdle to attaining that? Why don't why don't we have that already? Why yeah. is it so difficult? For many years, let us say, certainly until nineteen eighty six, there was a general belief that a superconductivity could only occur at temperatures below about say a tenth of room temperature. The reason for that is somewhat complicated, but typically. One uh, factor which comes into the expression for the the maximum temperature of superconductivity is the characteristic so-called Debye temperature associated with the lattice vibrations in a, a metal. Typically, that will itself be something of the order of room temperature. And then you find that there's another factor which annoyingly never seems to be quite equal to one. Um, it's, it can be able to say a tenth or a twentieth, but it's never really quite equal to one. So when you take those two together, multiply them together, you get something like about a tenth of room temperature. And as I say, this is the general um, belief in the community for many, many years. Um, uh, however, in 1986, um, the high temperature cuprate superconductors were discovered. They are a class, a rather special class of metals, where well, first of all, the mechanism of superconductivity appears to be quite different from what it is in, in the more traditional superconductors. And so these factors really becoming relevant and what governs the transition temperature, the highest temperature at which you get superconductivity is something different. Mm-hmm. So initially, these were discovered to be superconducting at something like 90 or 100 degrees absolute, so about a third of room temperature. And that was already a big, big leap forward. But people were very optimistic in the early days. They thought, um, okay, well, if we make it a third of room temperature, then why not room temperature itself? Unfortunately, it turned out to be not quite that simple. They got up to about half of room temperature and then it's stuck. And it's been stuck there for, oh, 30 years now, I think, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, 
um, something else exciting has happened. People indeed do now have essentially superconductivity at room temperature, where they've actually got up to 273 degrees, um, absolute, or it's 300 um, degrees absolute. I'm not sure it's probably 295 or something, but anyway, it's, it's essentially room temperature. Uh, however, there's a rather major snag. You can only do this under really, really huge pressures. Mm. The kind of thing you can only get in a diamond anvil press, for example. <laughs> Not the sort of thing you can just turn a knob and get it room, te- right. at, uh, room pressure. So, so um, people have all sorts of, of um, ideas about how you might get around this problem. For example, you might try to um, produce the superconductivity under these very high pressures and then gradually relax the pressure and so forth. And some of those might work, but so far we don't actually have the robust superconductivity at under ambient conditions, meaning at um, norm, normal temperatures and pressures, like in, like in this room now. So I think we'll get them, but um, I mean, I'm, I'm an optimist in that respect. <laughs> that was my next question. Are you an optimist that we'll get there? But you just said so. What, yeah, what? I, I think I am. Um, in fact, um, when I talk to an uh, audience of school kids, I often predict that if not in my time, at least, a lifetime, at least in theirs, we will have room temperature superconductivity and then we'll have all these um, marvellous science fiction-like um, scenarios of people being conveyed from one place to another on these um, floating superconducting magnets and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And earlier when we were asking you about these macroscopic quantum effects in general, you oh. made this nice analogy to this military parade. Yes. How do I think of that military parade in the context of superconductivity? There are really two, uh, well, I would say, but other, other people might disagree, but I would say that there are two major phenomena which in some sense, for me at least, define what I mean by superconductivity. One of them is the sort of floating magnet effect, which is very uh, very spectacular, very characteristic of superconductors. The other is, in some sense, um, less spectacular. It's simply that if I take a ring, say, of, suppose I take an ordinary copper ring, and I generate what we call an EMF, uh, a a voltage around the, the ring, or electric field, if you like, around the ring. I can do that, for example, by waving a, a, a little magnet in the vicinity. Then that will generate uh, an electric current. But if I'm talking about just something like copper, an ordinary metal, um, uh, once I've stopped waving the magnet, the current will just die away, and it'll die away on a very short time scale, maybe a, a um, billionth of a second or something like that, very, very fast. If, on the other hand, I take a superconducting ring uh, do the same thing. I wave the magnet around, generate a current, start circulating. But now I take the magnet away, nothing happens. The current continues to start to circulate. Okay, so now in terms of the um, platoon of soldiers um, analogy, think first about the normal metal. And so rather than the marketplace now, I think about a, a forest, a, a natural forest, not a plantation. So the trees are just arranged at random. And imagine I take a group of school kids and I simply tell them to run into the forest and I start them running off in a, a particular direction. But I don't give them any, any further instructions than that. Well, fine. Um, they start running um, all in, in the same direction. But eventually, um, one kid is going to run up against a tree 
So having no special instructions, she will swerve to avoid it and end up running in a different direction. And after a few minutes, you can see that all the kids are going to be running around in completely random directions. So that's the analogue uh, analog of what happens in a normal, in the normal metal like copper. You start the electrons off all going in the same direction, then they bump into, in this case, um, impurities in the uh, metal, be scattered in random directions, as it were, no special instructions. <laughs> so they stay, they stay in the new direction, and after a short time, they're all running around at random, so no total current. The, the currents just cancel. Now, okay, let's think about the superconductor and let's think about the, in this case, actually it's not single electrons, it's pairs of electrons, which makes it a little more complicated. So you have these pairs of electrons, which I send off, uh, again, I send them off all uh, running in the same direction. Well, again, one of the electrons in the pair, or maybe the, the two, run up against an impurity. So they swerve to avoid it. But... The crucial difference is that they now have instructions. They've all got to keep in step at least as far as is possible. So having swerved to avoid the um, impurity, they will drop back and get, uh, get in in step with all, all the, um, the, the rest. So they'll be like the platoon of uh, soldiers rather than the kids. And so the current will continue essentially to, to, to flow for as long as I want to. Look at it. And that's due to the, the makeup of the metal itself, the, its internal structure? That's a very complicated question, actually. <laughs> uh, what, in other words, what exactly is it that makes some metal superconducting and others not? Mm -hmm. In the old days, it used to be thought the answer was um, so at least somewhat straightforward. You have, you've got to be able to form these pairs of electrons. But in order to do that, you need some kind of effective attraction between them. Now, the problem is that if you just think about the direct Coulomb in an interaction between electrons, it actually is repulsive. So it's not going to help you to form pairs, or at least not obviously. However, it turns out the subtlety, and this was the um, work of my former colleague John Bardeen and, uh, and colleagues, plural, John Bardeen and David Pines at the University of Illinois mm -hmm. way back in the 50s. They realised um, that if... What could happen is something like this. One of the electrons is coming through the, the uh, lattice and it's uh, coming in some sense quite fast. And uh, as it uh, comes through, it will tend to attract the ions of the metal which are positively charged. So the ions will tend to congregate towards the path of the electron. But the electron is rather fast and the ions are rather slow. So long after the electron has gone uh, away again, the ions will still be left there, sort of hanging around in the, uh, around the path where the electron was. That, of course, forms a, a positive charge. And a second electron is now attracted to that. And so the second electron is attracted um, not to where the first one now is, but where it was in the recent past. And it turns out that is a very um, effective way of forming these pairs, so-called Cooper pairs of um, electrons. Um, and that, that uh, is thought to be the mechanism of superconductivity in the old-fashioned superconductors. Uh, so uh, the, the metals which don't become superconducting are simply those which, um, for which the, um, this effect is not strong enough to outweigh the original Coulomb repulsion.
And that's a very detailed matter, which is difficult to get right for first principles, though people are getting better at it these days. But now in the, in the more, more recent superconductors, like the so-called high-temperature ones, the cuprate superconductors, almost certainly that's not what's happening. Something different is happening, and although one doesn't know in detail what's going on, what seems to be likely is that already in the normal phase at, say, room temperature or whatever, these metals are what are called strongly correlated systems, which means that the Coulomb interaction already has had a large effect and governs the relative behaviour of the electrons and so forth. Uh, what happens when the Cooper pairs form, in this case, is not that you've produced, as it were, a new attraction between the electrons, rather you've reduced the original repulsion, and that makes it advantageous to do it. I think most people would agree that that's the a sort of very general scenario, but to actually dot the I's and cross the T's is by no means trivial. Much more complicated. So there really is no universally agreed um, theory um, of the cuprate superconductors in the sense that there was of the old-fashioned ones. What I talked about was su uh, explicitly superconductivity. Superfluidity is a very similar phenomenon, but occurring in a neutral, electrically neutral system like, say, liquid helium. It's basically the same conjunction of effects, but in slightly di slightly different disguise because you're talking about a neutral system. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, in the case of the persistent currents, it's basically the same as in superconductors. If I take a ring, uh, annular flower ball kind of geometry, uh, put liquid helium in it, and I, um, I somehow manage to get it circulating, if it's in the normal phase, again, it'll just stop after a minute or two. If it's in the superfluid phase, it'll basically continue to circulate forever, just mm -hmm. as the electrons did in the superconductor. Mm -hmm. So that's a straightforward analogy. But um, in the case of the um, levitated magnet, is a little more complicated. In, in this case, what happens um, is that if I, again, take an annular ring, put it, say, on an um, old-fashioned gramophone turntable and start the turntable rotating, Again, if it's in the normal phase, just like water, it'll eventually come into rotation with the uh, turntable. If I do this with helium at uh, sufficiently low temperatures, it will refuse to rotate with the container and it'll stay, well, at first sight at least, it'll stay um, uh, stationary in the laboratory frame of reference. Now, if, you're, if you think about it, you might think, well, wait a minute, that's a bit suspicious because, after all, the laboratory is itself rotating with the rotation of the Earth, mm -hmm. etc. Is it really stationary in the laboratory or is it really stationary in the frame of the fixed stars? And the theoretical prediction, rather confidently, is it's stationary in the frame of the fixed stars. Um, experimentally, it's a little less clear, but it's consistent. I should say the experiments are consistent, at least mm -hmm. with that being right, the right answer. So superfluids, then, are rather closely analogous to superconductors. On the other hand, again, a consequence of a very large number of microscopic objects, in this case the atoms, being constrained to do the same thing at the same time. The other kind of um, macroscopic quantum effect, which is what I've been more specifically interested in over uh, the last 30, 40-odd years, is that in microscopic physics, you very often get the situation that a microscopic object, let's say an, an atom, it appears 
to behave in a different way depending on whether or not you're looking at it. The, the standard example of this is a so-called young slits interference experiment, which was originally done by Young himself with, with light. Nowadays, it's done with electrons, and uh, the late uh, Akira Tonomura in Japan uh, did a whole series of very convincing experiments on this. And so, at least in principle, you can do the experiment this way. You uh, take a source of, ele- of electrons, well, you have to sort of tune the knobs on the black box rather carefully to make sure they're the right electrons, but you can do it. Um, and you allow them to go through one of two paths and eventually arrive at a final screen. And if you just uh, set it up that way and you don't look at what's going on, as it were, then you find you get a standard uh, pattern of bright and dark lines um, on your, your final screen. The way that Tonomura does it, you can actually see, as it were, the individual electrons coming through one by one and gradually building up this pattern. Uh, so it's clear that that's what they're doing when you don't look at them. On the other hand, if you try to detect which of these two paths the, a given electron took, you always see it took one path or the other, then you, don't, you destroy the interference pattern. Okay, mm. so you have the choice between observing which path it took or observing the interference pattern. This is an example of what Niels Bohr called complementarity, basically. In the early days of quantum mechanics, it used to be thought that somehow this phenomenon, uh, so-called interference um, or phenomenon or quantum superposition, this was limited to the microscopic world, atoms, electrons, and so forth. Then Schrödinger, through, well, let's say, if I make a pun, a cat among the pigeons, by, um, by his famous cat thought experiment, he envisaged a situation in which um, if the electron in question, I actually had a slightly different setup, but let's say the electron in question, if it went one way, then it would trigger some kind of um, counter or whatever, and as a result, various things would happen at the everyday level. In his case, um, he had a cat inside a closed box, and the um, would um, the cat would die. Uh, it would actually not be, as, as many people erroneously think, it would not be shot or electrocuted. It would actually be poisoned with cyanide. But that's a detail. <laughs> anyway, the cat would end up dead. If the electron went in the opposite path, nothing, nothing would happen. The cat would stay alive. Now, the thing is that it's not an an experimental, it's not a directly observed experimental result, but it's a very firm prediction of the formalism of quantum mechanics that if you're not looking at the experiment, as it were, the correct description of the electron at the intermediate stage is that it's neither doing one thing nor the other. It's in a so-called quantum superposition, and it's only because it's in this quantum superposition that it can later cause the interference phenomenon on the screen. On the other hand, if you look at it, then it appears to choose one one alternative or the other. Well, what Schrödinger was pointing out, basically, was that um, if you believe, as he and most of his contemporaries believed, that quantum mechanics is the whole story, then you observe that the formalism of quantum mechanics has a very characteristic property. However complicated the system you're talking about, if you start off with two possibilities, A and B, say, if alternative A initially leads to alternative A prime at the end of the day, alternative B leads to alternative B prime at the end of the day, then the quantum superposition of A plus B 
leads to the quantum superposition of A prime plus B prime. Mm -hmm. It's a very, uh, very fundamental feature of the quantum formalism. And if you deny that, you're no longer really um, believing in quantum mechanics, you're believing <laughs> in something else. So in his case, in the case of the CAT experiment, since the electron started off in the linear super, uh, quantum superposition of these two possibilities, then finally the CAT, or more, more, more accurately, the universe containing the CAT must end up in a quantum superposition of these two possibilities. And yet, I don't think anyone doubts that um, if we were to do this experiment, and um, fortunately, animal protection societies have prevented us doing it in a statistically significant way. But if we did, then <laughs> in each individual case, when we opened the box, we would definitely find the cat to be either alive or dead. And that's basically the people usually call it the quantum measurement paradox. I prefer to call it the quantum realization paradox. The fact that at mi the microscopic level, um, no uh, alternative um, is, is definitely realized. At the macroscopic level, it, uh, it uh, fairly obviously is. Uh, when Schrodinger first put up this um, uh, this uh, paradox, it isn't clear whether how seriously he himself took it. Really, people shrugged it off basically, and the reason that most people shrugged it off was uh, the phenomenon. A phenomenon was called decoherence, which means that okay, so long as I have a a system which is sufficiently isolated that I can try to describe it entirely in its own right, as it were, uh, for example, a beam of atoms in vacuum, something like that, then I can simply write down the textbook, quantum mechanical formula. But the moment that system starts to interact with any kind of environment, that means anything I'm not interested in, really, the environment will come in and try to screw things up. And in particular, what it will try to do is to randomise the relative phase of the different components of the quantum mechanical wave function. A slight uh, oversimplification, but it basically conveys the essence. Since the interference pattern depends very crucially on the relative phase, this means that the moment the environment screws things up, you no longer get the interference effect and so forth. So all your predictions are just as if the electron had gone through one slit or the other, but you just don't know which. In technical language, it means that the off-diagonal elements of the density matrix go away. Um, uh, um, anyway, so a lot of people just basically shrugged this off. And this is an argument which recurred and recurred, and oh, even through the 70s and 80s, you were still finding people publishing papers claiming to resolve the, the uh, cat paradox this way. So I started asking myself, well, wait a moment, is that really true? The further you go from the microscopic level, the level of the electron and the atom, to the macroscopic level, the level of the cat or the uh, Geiger counter or whatever, the more important these interference effects generally become. So that most people agree that under most circumstances, uh, by the time you've got up to the level of cats and counters or whatever, none of these interference effects really are left at all. A lot, a lot of people were happy with that. <laughs> not you? Not me. Um, <laughs> and actually, I should say, uh, not some, um, some rather well-known other people like John Bell. But it was, that was a minority point of view. So sometime around the late 70s, I started asking myself, well, can't we somehow get around the decoherence objection? That is, can't we devise a situation in which quantum mechanics, if you do take it seriously, as Schrodinger had done, Quantum mechanics really predicts that a genuinely macroscopic object is in a quantum superposition of macroscopically distinct states. 
And can we then now try to indicate that it's in those, uh, that superposition by, by getting it to display interference effects the same way as the electron did? My shorthand for this, um, this program of research, which I was not going to do myself because I'm not an experimentalist, but I was going to try to persuade some of my experimental colleagues to do it. Um, uh, my, my shorthand for it was building Schrodinger's cat in the laboratory. I, I was not the incidentally I was not the only person to think of this, but I think that the one or two other people who did propose things along these lines had really not taken the decoherence um, objection um, seriously, and uh, I, I thought it was really necessary to to do that. Anyway, there's a huge cry of objection from the whole um, professional quantum measurement community. I mean, there's this whole group of people, usually um, sometimes in departments of physics, more often in departments of philosophy or mathematics or whatever, mm-hmm. um, who basically made it their life's work to implement the, the decoherence argument in more detail and to show that you could never see interference at the macroscopic level. So, of course, all these people are up in arms and very indignant that I suggested any such thing. And so with the whole series of exchanges over the next 20 years or so <laughs> in uh, the pages of the Physical Review Letters. Um, luckily, very luckily, my experimental colleagues are much more open-minded, <laughs> and, uh, which is something I found actually much more generally. <laughs> um, and so several experimental groups did start off in the early and mid-80s to, to begin implementing this program. And it, it had to go at a sort of measured pace, but by around 2000, they had got to the point where they could sh- uh, show that at least in a certain kind of superconducting device, technically called a, um, well, it used to be called a um, RF squid, but nowadays it goes by a more fancy name, the name of flux qubit, because it's used in quantum computing. Anyway, in this kind of device, you uh, got a situation where quantum mechanics appeared to predict that you would get these interference effects, and the experiments seemed consistent, at least, with it. However, now was not the end of the story because, I mean, the mere fact that quantum mechanics predicts a certain kind of effect and you see this effect experimentally doesn't prove that quantum mechanics is right. What you would rather do is to prove that some alternative class of theories is wrong. That's logically a much more sounder argument. And so, uh, so I and others did some analysis for this and eventually we did get, get around to an experiment. Um, this experiment was done by a group in NTT, at NTT in Japan um, in 2016. And uh, I, I'm a sort of incidental co-author on the paper, but I'm sort of rather, rather tangential to it. Sure enough, uh, that experiment did seem to show not only that quantum mechanics was working, but that a whole class of other theories in which things at the macroscopic level, things do one thing or the other, was not working. And so I think that's been at least somewhat uh, satisfying since it's got that far. Where we go from here, of course, is anyone's guess. Uh, my, my own feeling is that we're not at the end of the road and that if we push things far enough, and particularly if we push them far enough in the direction of direct human perception, that we will get a surprise at some point, that um, something will go wrong. We don't know what, but we don't know when, but we do not go wrong. <laughs> you seem excited about the prospect of things going wrong, <laughs> yeah, which, yeah. which is yeah, always the case. Interesting. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. You've mentioned a couple of times collaborators around the world, places mm-hmm. like China and yeah. Japan. And when we were chatting with you the other day, uh, you mentioned how important your, your travels to other countries have been. And we actually have a question that we'd like to play for you on that subject. Okay. I'm David Pomeransky, and I'm currently a researcher in Japan at the Institute of Physical and Chemical Research. 
I've noticed that you've lived in several distinct places throughout your career. I think this is one of the great opportunities of being a researcher. Can you comment on the factors that drove you? What were the pros and cons of these experiences in shaping your career? Yeah, thank you. That's a very interesting question. I think uh, my original motivation uh, for spending a postdoctoral um, year in Japan, which is my first, my first major foreign excursion, was uh, simply curiosity. I'd always been um, curious about to try to learn about the culture, history, and to some extent, language of uh, languages of Northeast Asia, of both Japan and China at the point where I had the opportunity of possibly taking a year abroad. I should say, incidentally, this was by the kindness of my Oxford college, who interpreted the terms of my fellowship um, very liberally, <laughs> trying to allow me to spend a year of the fellowship in, in Japan. At that particular point, there was no realistic opportunity of going to China. It was in the last days of the Cultural Revolution. But Japan seemed um, also very attractive. And so I was able to get a position in the, or get a, get a, uh, at least a desk in the group of, of uh, Professor Takeo Matsubara in, in Kyoto. Um, and so the prospect of living in a new society and culture, learning a new language and trying to operate in it were a challenge which I rather looked forward to. And indeed, I think that's, that's how it worked out. I made many, uh, many, many friends um, in Japan and many of them I've kept in touch with throughout my career. I think by living in a culture where the things which are obviously taken for granted in one's own culture, and for example, in the degree to which certain kinds of human relationship impose privileges at one or, on the other hand, responsibilities, these are really quite different um, between, say, um, uh, Europe and uh, North America on the one hand and Japan on the other. And so, and so I find it very very mentally stimulating to, to experience this and to think about and try to operate according to a, a set of slightly different rules mm -hmm. and, and so forth. I find learning a very a, a new language, not just a new language, but a language of a very, very different um, structure from most um, Indo-European languages. It's almost like learning to, to use a new muscle which you didn't know you had. Uh, so again, very, very stimulating, very exciting. I think. You're making me nostalgic because in my early 20s, I spent two years in Japan. Oh, so really? all, all of these experiences of learning a new language and learning a yeah. new culture. Yeah. I didn't know that. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. It, was a, it was a wonderful place. What, what years were you in Japan? Um, the first year was 1965 to 6. Uh, the second year was after I got married. My wife is Japanese, and we spent the year uh, 1973, or most of the year 1973 to 4 there. And uh, you've told us about other travels as well. Um, yes. I, I remember you mentioned some work that you did in Ghana. In yes, Africa. that's right. Could yes. you tell us what motivated that and uh, oh, yes. what you got out of it? Yes, that was, uh, well, I mean, I, it's possible I would have gone anyway, but it had I found a different means of doing so. But in that case, there were no obviously set up arrangements. I mean, there were no major university groups, say, and my subject working in Ghana. Mm -hmm. And so the, uh, the way that that worked out was that 
when I and the person, Douglas Brewer, who eventually became Professor of Experimental Physics at Sussex, which is where I ended up in the UK, mm-hmm. um, he, he had been a student in Oxford, as, as I had, and uh, he had uh, met a doctoral student from Ghana at that time. And a few years later, they met up at some international conference or whatever, and the, the Ghanaian, who by that time was not only back home, but was head of department in, in, his, uh, in the physics department at the University of Science and Technology in Kumasi, in Ghana, this head of department suggested that we set up an exchange arrangement between the University of Sussex, where Douglas Brewer and I were working, and the University of Science and Technology. The arrangement was that they would send across one of their junior faculty members to try to finish off a PhD in a better environment, as it were, and uh, we would send off a faculty member for their heaviest teaching semester, which was the fall semester each year. Well, the first year, one of my colleagues went and had a good time and uh, and nothing went wrong much. The second year, um, I volunteered to go, to go, and so I went for the fall semester of, I think, 76. The third year, I wasn't particularly anxious to, to go again, but none of my colleagues seemed anxious either, so in the end, I, I felt I should volunteer again, and I, and I did. I was somewhat dismayed at the prospect of having to do a third year, but I was actually, well, somewhat unfortunate, to be honest. I was, somewhat, uh, I was saved by that from the fact that one of the phenomena, sort of recurring phenomena in Ghana, at least in those days, we're talking about the mid-70s, was the coups. They used to have a coup every two years or so. It didn't mean much. Uh, generally speaking, what it meant was that they just renamed a couple of the major streets downtown and so forth in honour of the new regime. But things went up pretty much as they, they had previously, and no one took all that much notice of it. Unfortunately, in I think 1977, they had a rather more serious coup when people did actually get killed. I mean, in the previous Coups, they're pretty bloodless, really. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but this time, people really did get killed, and the university got involved. And as a result, the authorities shut down the university for a semester, which totally put their timetable out of kilter. So, in fact, the arrangement was discontinued. So, I went for those two years in, in the fall of 76 and 77. Again, I found it very interesting in perhaps a rather different kind of way. In this case, I didn't really make a... I made some attempt to learn the basics of the language, but I didn't have a lot of opportunity. I mean, there was no systematic um, teaching, uh, language teaching or anything like that. So my my knowledge of Akan is very, very basic indeed. And again, the um, it wasn't too easy to mingle in most of the society, because, of course, most of the society, as it was, was located in the villages around uh, outside the main main town where the university campus was. But um, it's nevertheless very interesting, for example, to see the difference that their childhood experiences of technology or lack of experience made to my students' attitude. I actually volunteered in the second year that I was there to the horror, I should say, initially of my colleagues, to supervise the first-year labs. They said, you can't do that, you're a theorist. <laughs> you were more qualified? <laughs> no, I was not qualified. But, but um, I, I took the, the point of view, which I, unfortunately turned out to be correct, that 
the sort of uh, unconscious common sense, I would call it, or most people I think would think of it as, as physical common sense, which I'd picked up in childhood and adolescence simply by messing around with odd bits of, um, of uh, equipment and so forth. I mean, not, not at all complicated. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of taking the radio apart to see how it worked, something much simpler than that. It nevertheless gave you a sort of physical common sense that many of these kids who came directly from the villages, they just didn't have. I mean, the, in the villages, if, if you grew up in a, a Ghanaian village, the odds are that the most sophisticated product of traditional technology that you, you would have seen is uh, just a simple hand loom. And by Northeast Asian standards, the Ghanaian hand looms were really very, very straightforward and um, I wouldn't say primitive, but, um, but certainly not, not at all um, elaborate or sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And you go, I mean, you go from there directly to the motor car. And so, of course, then the motor car is just a black box really to you, even more, more so than it was to me. Uh, so I did find, so in some sense it was a bit embarrassing, really, but I did find that um, in many cases these people just didn't have the kind of common sense. That's not, not, that wasn't universally true. Some of them were really very much on the job. And they, they really figured out how quite, quite complicated bits of electrical equipment and so forth worked. But by and large, they didn't really have that background. Did this experience make you a better teacher? <laughs> Who knows? You'd have to ask the students. Um, <laughs> uh, um, what I can say um, is that um, many, many years later, this maybe only ten, something like 10 years ago, I... Uh, I was at a, a conference somewhere in the, in the American South and uh, ran into a, a um, guy who was teaching there who um, remarked he's gone. And I said, oh, I, I um, spent a semester at UST and whatever. And he said, yeah, he, he taught me. <laughs> and he, he seemed very happy about it. So. <laughs> well, that's good feedback uh, <laughs> that uh, a former student came to see you and spoke yeah. highly of it. Yeah, yeah sure. But I'd have to say that I, I didn't really like the way the... the courses uh, were organised or the kind of syllabus they had because this is based almost entirely on the British system since Ghana, because had been a British colony in the past. So they, they were uh, just really teaching sort of standard electromagnetism, standard stack mech, etc., etc. It wasn't really, I think, what these guys could use. The thing is, in a country like Ghana, and uh, you have to remember that um, really... If you look at Africa or sub-Saharan Africa, ex- excluding, say, um, South Africa and um, Zimbabwe and so forth, uh, but if you look at um, most of sub-Saharan Africa, Ghana is relatively ahead of the flock in most things. But, uh, but nevertheless, they have a huge shortage of just basic everyday mechanical skills there. And so all sorts of things which in Europe or America you'd assume you just farm out to some kind of specialist. In Ghana, those have to be done by the university because the university is the only place that can do them, Mm -hmm. basically. One example of this was that um, when the... UST, the place I was working, they had a um, some kind of anniversary they wanted to celebrate and in, in connection with that they wanted to have a university flag and erect it on a flagpole. 
Well, I mean, I think probably if something like the University of Waterloo for was doing the same thing, they'd routinely just um, sent off an order to the local engineering firm to build the flagpole, and they sent off an order to the, um, what's the word, seamstry specialist, mm-hmm. um, to sew an appropriate flag and, and so on and so forth. And this would all just be done as a routine part of everyday business. Well, you can't do that. These such places don't exist. It had had to be the uh, engineering department of the university which erected the flagpole. It had to be the finance department of the university which sold the flag. <laughs> and, uh, and a lot really? of things go like that. So, so really, um, uh, I think what's what's needed was to train a lot more people at a level which in Europe or America would not usually be regarded as the province of the university. Something much more basic, as it were but nevertheless very essential to the functioning of the country. One of the big problems with, um, which I, I, I certainly experienced when I was in Ghana was that um, you, know, you had all these aid organisations in Britain and Germany and whatever which were um, uh, which were sending out these nice um, fleets of shiny buses and so forth um, which were intended to revolutionise the transport network of a particular region. Well, they got there and after a few weeks or a few months they broke down. And no one was around to fix it, basically. Mm. And so, uh, so, so the whole aid program really rather ran into the ground. Uh, it's sort of a uh, presumption that what works yeah. in uh, the places that we're from will work somewhere else, but that's, that's right. not the yeah, case. It just doesn't. And, uh, um, I, I think um, I was not the only one of the um, among the expatriate teachers in Ghana, of whom there were quite a few, um, and many of them had been there a lot longer than I had. But I think um, most of them would agree with this. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners are just waiting patiently for us to ask you a bit about the Nobel Prize. And you've shown us already that you're such a great storyteller. So would you mind telling us the story of how you found out you won a Nobel Prize? Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a fairly easy one. I, uh, it had occurred to me, vaguely. I mean, I'd be, it'd be dishonest, I think, to say it hadn't, that um, I might possibly get the um, Nobel Prize someday. But uh, or, I mean, this, this does sound a bit arrogant, but I'd actually, when I, when, insofar as I thought about it at all, I thought um, it was more probable that I'd get the um, prize for um, the work I'd done on quantum foundations. Because I thought that in the case of helium-3, superfluid helium-3, they'd already given a prize to the three experimentalists and I thought that was probably the lot that they were going to give for that. So I hadn't particularly worried about it. In particular, I hadn't, I don't think I'd, I'd made a note of October, whatever it is on my calendar. <laughs> um, a lot of people I, I hear do, but I hadn't. I was up at 5.30 in the morning watching uh, the recent Nobel announcements. So I'm one of those people. Oh, well, okay, well, congratulations. <laughs> um, much better, and I'm not even in the running for one. Yeah. Um, but you have to write about it. I yes, guess. I do have to write about it. <laughs> anyway, um, so here was I sleeping soundly in my bed at something like 4.30 in the morning and uh, and the phone starts to ring and my first thought is that uh, this is one of my in-laws in Japan who's got the time difference the wrong way around, which Mm -hmm. they're always doing and calling in the middle of the night at some totally inappropriate hour. So I start (laughs) to stumble out of bed, blurry-eyed, and go go to the phone. And I pick up the phone and there's a voice on the other end which says, um, am I speaking to... Professor Anthony James Leggett, uh, rather formally, and I say, oh, yes, that's me. This is so-and-so of the uh, Swedish um, Academy of Sciences in Stockholm, whatever. And he says, the the physics committee of the Swedish uh, Academy of Sciences has um, debated concerning the Nobel Prize of 2003. And they have decided to award the prize 
to Professor Vitali Ginsburg of the, the Lebedev Academy of Sciences in Moscow and dot, 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 various mm-hmm. qualifications, and to <laughs> Professor Alexei Alexeyevich Abrikosov. I was thinking about that time, <laughs> what's this got to do with me? <laughs> Why are you telling me this at 4.30 yeah, right. in the morning? <laughs> and uh, finally, uh, and Professor Anthony James Leggett of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. <laughs> so uh, I think my first thought, is, I suspect, is a lot of people, is, this has to be a hoax. <laughs> 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 um, and, uh, but I, I decided I, I wouldn't just put the phone down, at least I'd go on listening. And mm-hmm. So he went on about various things. But the thing which I think really convinced me, it was probably for real, was that he said, um, look, I have to warn you one thing. We're, go- we're going to announce this prize at uh, such and such a time. I think it was, it was 12 o'clock in, in Stockholm, so 5 o'clock a.m. in a few minutes in, uh, in uh, central daylight You only time. found out a few minutes before. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And um, once this happens, you're going to get a lot of calls from journalists and so forth. And, uh, and so you should make some, some, as best you can, some kind of arrangement to handle these calls. And I thought that's not something I hope would think of somehow. <laughs> so I, I finally got convinced that that was right. <laughs> and I think your case is kind of particularly unique because, as you said, you shared this prize with two other researchers, Alexei Abrakosov and Vitaly Ginsburg. And, of course, I know that you've referred to them as giants in the field, and many people would have, but their work was done quite a while before your contributions to the prize. How did you react to finding out that you were sharing the prize with these other researchers? Well, to be honest, I was slightly puzzled. And um, (laughs) um, I mean, look, uh, I I know, although um, obviously this is not the sort of thing that's public knowledge, but I'm pretty sure that the experimentalists uh, in particular, the Cornell experimentalists, Experimentalists lobbied hard for, for me, uh, and, and I'm sure they're, they're very effective in, in, in doing so. But yeah, I mean, uh, my feeling, frankly, when I, when, if I think about it seriously, then uh, logically, if they were going to give a prize mostly for pre-BCS uh, superconductivity, I mean, there's no reason they shouldn't. But if they were going to do that. I really think there was another person besides Ginsburg and Abrikosov who should, who had a very good claim for that, and that was Pippard, but, uh, mm-hmm. Baron Pippard. Well, but I'm not complaining that they chose me, but uh, um, but in some sense, I think it was a bit out of the, as you say, a bit out of the ordinary logical structure of the prize. Yeah. This is a question, of course, I used to get um, at press conferences and so forth. People would ask, did you collaborate with um, Abrikos, uh, with uh, Ginsburg and uh, Abrikos? And uh, I'd have to say, well, you know, when Ginsburg and, and, and Lando actually were doing the work, which uh, eventually qualified them for the prize, I was 12 years old and living on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain. So, <laughs> so no. <laughs> How does winning a Nobel change your life? One thing that certainly changed is that I tend far more than I, I did previously to get um, asked for my opinion on matters uh, often of um, concerning world politics or sociology or whatever on which I really don't feel I have sufficient information to, uh, to give a sensible answer. 
So I usually try to dodge those questions as best I can, but in some cases I feel that the cause is sufficiently worthwhile that I do try to find out enough, having been asked the question I, or asked to sign a petition usually or whatever, mm-hmm. um, I uh, try to find out enough about the issue in question and the pros and cons and to decide whether I can uh, honestly sign the petition or not. You're giving a talk here tomorrow, and I've noticed the title of the talk is The Serendipitous Road to a Nobel Prize. Yes, right. Uh, can you speak to the idea of serendipity and what role that plays? Uh, the most serendipitous event, I think, in my whole career, really, was the, um, was the elevation of Sputnik in the fall of 1957. Uh, that was what basically enabled me uh, to switch from my original course of study in Oxford, which was on the humanities side of the Oxford great degree, to switch from that to physics. Had it not been um, for that, I think the uh, the whole idea of someone who had had no experience, well, it's not quite literally true that I had zero experience of physics at high school, but to all intents and purposes, I had no, no experience of it. Someone who had no, no, no meaningful experience of physics at high school and had uh, not taken any undergraduate course in physics, whatever, suddenly to start a second undergraduate um, degree after finishing the first one in humanities. Luckily, the um, uh, Sputnik changed pop, um, popular attitudes um, quite a lot, and one of the things it did was to make a lot of people question the idea, which in some sense had been a sort of given in British society up to that point, that, that um, the natural thing for people who were intellectually um, talented in any way, uh, was to, uh, to study um, things like the um, classics or, or perhaps politics, uh, philosophy and economics, PE, the Oxford degree, and then uh, to go into some kind of governmental role in the civil service or whatever. Not a great deal of attention had been paid to the education of scientists and in particular to make making sure that people who really had a, a, an aptitude um, and certainly a, a zeal for science could actually go into it. I mean, yeah. I never really had that uh, opportunity. Rather surprisingly, actually, because my father was, in fact, a school teacher of uh, mathematics, physics and chemistry, but yeah. he never, uh, never really put any kind of pressure on me um, to study in that area. In fact, rather the opposite. He encouraged me to go into the classics. So, again, I think he was a sort of victim of his time in that respect. Yeah. So the launch of Sputnik just put in the public consciousness this idea that studying science could have a, a real important practical outcome? Is that Well, yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, the, the cry went up, how come that the Soviets have got ahead of us in this incredibly important technological field? And, of course, the answer was, well, we've encouraged all our, all our best people to go into useless things like classics <laughs> and not into useful things like physics. Mm-hmm. So I was not by any means the only person who tried to make the uh, switch at that time. In particular, I remember maybe half a dozen people um, in my, my year at Oxford who had done a first degree in history and then decided to switch into chemistry. And I don't think that ever really worked out for any of those people. And I, I mean, I think I can sort of see why, because really chemistry and physics are somewhat different in, uh, in, the, in the fact that 
as far, I, I suspect at least, I mean, I've never really um, had a, any, any proper course in chemistry, so I can't really tell, but um, I suspect that much more of undergraduate education in chemistry consists of just learning facts and reactions and so on and so forth, um, whereas physics is at least is a great deal more organised, as it were, because you much uh, clearer intellectual pattern. Is that organisation part of what drew you to physics? Okay, what, what do you mean to physics specifically? Uh, that, that, uh, yeah, okay, that was sort of indirect process of argumentation with myself. The first step along the road was so negative, really, in the sense that I, I was very immature, I mean, in retrospect. Uh, I first started thinking about my future career at, let's say, sometime in the end of my third, the third year of my four-year degree in, in Oxford. Suddenly realised that I was going to have to do something in life for which someone else is going to pay me. <laughs> um, um, I couldn't go on being a student forever. Uh, so at that point, I had really had no experience outside of high school or uh, uh, university undergraduate work. I mean, there was no Peace Corps or anything equivalent in those days. I tried rather a desultory way to uh, to find a short-term job for the last two semesters of my what would have been my high school uh, career. Um, didn't work out, so so I had to stay at that school. Then three years of undergraduate study. So no experience really of life outside some kind, some kind of academia. So I was just pretty unimaginative, frankly. I just thought, um, well, what am I going to do in life? Well, I look around, I see one of my um, classmates uh, or, you know, the earlier years. Um, what have they done? People who've graduated in this particular course, great course. Well, the answer was mostly either they had gone into the British Civil Service or they had become teachers of one of the subjects they studied. These were classical languages and literature, ancient history, ancient Greek and Roman uh, philosophy. Uh, and I took one look at the civil service and I thought, really, this is not my cup of tea at all. I'm not going to be good at it. I probably even failed the civil service exam, I imagine, had I taken it because I just don't have the right kind of skills. So that was not an option really for me. Well, so it had to be teaching, basically. So... Uh, which of the three subjects? Well, I'd enjoyed all three, but the one I'd really enjoyed most of all, um, probably done best at, was philosophy. So I started thinking a little more concretely about this. So I'm going to, what I'm going to do, I'm going to get my final degree in grades. I will apply for a um, postgraduate degree in philosophy. Eventually I'll get that after three years or so. I will then, uh, in those days probably I would have gone straight on to a faculty, a junior faculty position. I would end up in a, uh, incidentally, <coughs> uh, school teaching was not an option because uh, philosophy just isn't taught at uh, high school level in the UK. At least it wasn't in those days. So, so it had to be university. So I would end up in, as, a, as a faculty member in the Department of Philosophy at a university. End of story. That's my career. <laughs> um, <coughs> The more I thought about this, the more I realised I somehow just didn't want to do this. And uh, so I started thinking, you know, what is it exactly that I don't like about this um, this prospect? Well, I mean, I think had I been had a little more experience of life, I would have thought maybe I'm not not really should not really be thinking about going into academia at all. Maybe I should go go and become a rock climbing instructor or something. <laughs> so, um, where where I've been terrible, incidentally, <laughs> but, um, but uh, that didn't occur to me. So it had to be something about philosophy specifically as a subject. 
started asking myself, you know, what exactly is it? Why is it that I don't want to spend my whole life doing not just uh, teaching, but presumably also research in academic philosophy? And the more I thought about it, the more it seemed that it was because, at least as it was practiced in Oxford in those days, but what counted as good or bad work in philosophy seemed to be so much a matter, first of all, of how exactly you phrased your conclusions, the exact nuances in terms of phrase, and secondly, of your colleagues' opinions of what you've done. There really didn't seem to be any kind of hard touchstone of whether what you're doing was good or bad work, whether it's correct or not. And so I started thinking, I really want to go into some area of academia where there will be this, um, an external touchstone of whether what I'm doing is, is good work or not. And I had had, uh, by a series of coincidences, I'd had um, a very little exposure at high school level to modern mathematics. And so my first thought was, well, perhaps I should become a mathematician or try to become a professional mathematician. And then I remember very clearly saying to myself, no, I don't want to become a professional mathematician. Why not? Because in mathematics, by the very nature of the subject, if you're wrong, it means you're stupid. <laughs> I would like to be able to be wrong without being stupid. <laughs> and so I started, in some sense, um, at least subconsciously, looking for a, a subject where I could be wrong. That is, I could make sort of conjectures about the world, which were not trivial, but which nevertheless might be right or wrong. And then I, I thought I or my colleagues could go out and find out whether they were right or wrong. And that's how eventually I came to physics. I think, frankly, had I had, were able to make the choice again, I could easily have plugged for engineering rather than physics. But uh, that was a period, and I was at a stage of my career where it seemed that to be an engineer, you had to be good with your hands, and I was terrible with my <laughs> hands. I mean, I didn't realise there were aspects of engineering where it didn't really apply, but uh, anyway, I didn't really consider that seriously. So, so physics, it had to be, and and then, of course, then, then all the fun started. I had to actually uh, start making this a, a reality, and mm -hmm. uh, that was highly non-trivial. There were lots of uh, aspects to that I had to to get, get a university to accept me. Actually, more than one Oxford College did accept me, and I ended up at a, a different one where they would not only accept me but give me some financial support. But the, the major obstacle was the draft, the military draft. We're talking about my graduation in the uh, summer of 1959. Um, some, a couple of years before that, the British government had decided that the draft would end. And the last intake would be the summer of 59. Now, I'd already got four years deferment from the draft for, to do my first undergraduate degree. I go to my draft board and um, say to them, look, you, you guys, I, um, if, I know you've been very generous and given me four years to do a degree in grades. Well, I would actually rather like to do a second undergraduate degree in physics. Um, so uh, would you like to give me another two years for that? And they, they, of course, would look at me and say, well, we've got your number. You're just going, going trying to get out of it altogether, <laughs> which, of course, is what happened eventually. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, that, that did not seem likely to fly. 
And then, of course, is where Sputnik came in. Of course, mm-hmm. um, finally, my tutors. Again, I mean, I think I'm sure my tutors argued very, very hard and eloquently in my favour. But as they were able to convince the draft board that uh, I'd be more used to the country doing a second degree in in science um, rather than uh, on the parade ground. <laughs> There's actually another question from a student that uh, touches on this idea from a student named Felicity. So let's uh, play that one for you. Hi, Sir Anthony. I'm Felicity in grade eight. Can you imagine yourself in any other profession? (laughs) Well, I did in the past. Um, When I was five years old, my ambition, believe it or not, was to become a railway signalman. Um, I was very fascinated by the way the signals worked, etc. A bit later than that, I um, my ambition was to become an explorer. Uh, in those days, there was no GPS or anything like that, <laughs> so there were still fairly large tracts of the planet which um, had at least not, I mean, they may have been inhabited or not, but they were certainly not systematically mapped or whatever, so, uh, so that was not totally unrealistic. But nowadays, uh, yes, I think uh, I think I could. And had I uh, got to start my career again, then I think I'd probably come for something like experimental neuro, uh, neuropsychology. Hmm. And the reason for that is partly that it's I think it's uh, has full of very fascinating questions. But secondly, that well, it really is much more direct practical use to humanity than um, doing research in the foundations of quantum mechanics <laughs> or, or in the superfood helium-3 or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think I probably would go in that direction. Um, whether I'd be successful or happy or not in that career, I don't know, but I think mm-hmm. that's what I would do. There's actually a, a related question. I, I, I put up on an internet forum, I said, I'm going to speak to Sir Anthony Leggett. Would you have any questions for him? And we received a question from someone named Douglas that is related to this topic mm-hmm. as well. Hi, Anthony. My name is Douglas, and I'm a student of physics in the University of Maryland. And as someone who's about to go to a physics PhD, I'm very curious to hear from you. What do you think are the most promising and exciting fields of physics right now? And if you were to choose your field and your career path right now, would you choose, say, low temperature physics again and condensed matter theory, or would you go for something else? Okay, thank you, Douglas. That's a good question. I don't know if you're familiar uh, I'm addressing Douglas now. I don't know if you're familiar with the late Thomas Kuhn's distinction between so-called revolutionary and normal science. The idea is that for most of the history of of science, things are done according to what he calls a particular paradigm, which basically sets the kind of questions you can ask, the kind of answers you're allowed to give, etc., etc. And then, very occasionally, there are these revolutionary periods when all the rules change. In some sense, the subject comes out of that revolutionary period looking quite different from what it was when it went in. And he cites, for example, the Copernican Revolution in the history of physics, the quantum mechanical revolution, special relativity, etc., etc. Addressing again Douglas, I think you should ask yourself, would I rather work in a normal or a revolutionary period of science? Um, at first sight, uh, you might think it's um, uh, it's much more exciting to work in a revolutionary period. 
Um, on the other hand, if you want to, as it were, get a certain minimum achievement in your career, that may not be the answer. It may be better to work in a normal period when, you know, you have well-defined rules according to which you can operate. If you work hard and um, are conscientious and so forth, the, the odds are high that you will make a successful career, publish the appropriate number of papers, etc., etc. So that's one choice you have to make. But then, of course, suppose you do come out with the revolutionary answer, then in which area of physics is the revolution, is a revolution most likely to occur? I think I would have to say that probably not very likely in most current areas. The only one in which I do see a possibility is cosmology. I'm a total outsider, and so I'm speaking from ignorance, but my impression, at least for what it's worth, is that Many of the ideas which are floating around in cosmology, dark matter, dark energy, these are to some extent really band-aids. And that there are there's something much much deeper that, that may be wrong and may have to be uh, may eventually be overthrown. So if I had to bet on where the next major revolution in physics is going to come, it would be in that area. Other than that, would I go for low temperature physics? I might, I think, because low temperature physics is one area in which you see how the interaction of many particles, which individually may be rather boring, how, uh, how the, the interaction and collaboration of those particles may produce um, effects which are qualitatively quite unexpected and novel. You'll notice I've not used in in, in, the, in that sentence the word emergence. I hate it. I hate the word emergence. Oh, no, I was about to use it. Why do you hate it? <laughs> Why do I hate the word emergence? Well, I, uh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't say I hate it, period. That would be too strong. I mean, I think there are valid uses of the word emergence. For example, if you uh, if someone says that space and time are emergent from a deeper level of reality, uh, which is based on quite different kinds of concepts, I think that's probably a valid use of the term. What I hate is when people talk about, um, say, um, emergent superconductivity, as is actually the title of an institution I worked in a few years ago. I hated it. Um, um, because, and the reason I hate it there is that essentially there is no topic in, no, certainly no interesting topic in the whole of condensed matter physics, which is not, quote, emergent, unquote. So saying that something is emergent in that context adds nothing to it. Mm -hmm. It's just a buzzword, nothing more. But anyway, getting back to the uh, low temperature physics. Yeah, so, so that's what I like about low temperature physics. And moreover, unlike, say, high energy physics, it is a tabletop kind of, of area. You can not only make conjectures, you, uh, you can actually do experiments or at least get your colleagues to do experiments, often within a time scale of a year or two on, mm. uh, on these ideas. Uh, for example, I did this in, on one occasion. I had an idea concerning superconductivity. And sure enough, within a few months, my colleague, Delvin Harling, and his collaborators had actually done it, an experiment. Uh, so that's what, what I like about the temperatures. But I think I might, again, be somewhat drawn by the fact that there are areas of physics which are both intellectually exciting and have much more direct um, human relevance. And one of those would obviously be neurophysics, or more generally biophysics, but neurophysics in, in particular. So I, th I think I might well um, make that choice had I got to do it again from scratch. You've already given some specific advice to someone who's deciding to pursue a PhD in physics, but do you have other advice for students that might be earlier in 
deciding that they like science, but they're maybe still deciding what they want to do from there? Uh, I think my first piece of advice would be do follow your own curiosity. If there's a question which you feel you don't understand and you have a suspicion that no uh, other people aren't understanding it too well either, well, really beaver away at it, follow it up. Don't worry if um, if other people shrug their shoulders and say, oh, that's a silly question, everyone knows how that works. Remember, I always say remember Einstein. For 250 years, people have been sort of taking it for granted, or most people at least have been taking it for granted, that if an object is dropped in vacuum, whether it's a feather, a stone, a pencil, or whatever, it will fall with exactly the same acceleration. They're sort of taking it for granted ever since Galileo, basically. Einstein asked why. Why does this happen? Now, I'm sure that when he asked that question, a whole lot of his colleagues say, yeah, that's a stupid question. They just do. Everyone knows that. So don't take that um, as an answer. Just, just follow away at it and wait, uh, work away at it until you, you find an answer which at least is satisfying to you, um, whether or not other people agree with it or not. And um, in the process of doing that, the second point, I would say, don't worry too much about the existing literature. I mean, well, if you're at undergraduate stage, perhaps you're not reading physical review or physical of letters, I don't know, but you will certainly at a graduate level. Don't, uh, I would say don't go away and find every single paper that's been written on the, on the question you're interested in in the last 50 years. That's usually a disaster because these papers will all give contradictory um, ideas and so on and so forth. No clear picture will come out of it. Try as much as you can, try and do it yourself from scratch, from really rather basic um, principles. I was very lucky to be able to do that pretty much by accident, not more than by design, but um, when the experiments on superfluid helium-3 came up in uh, 1972, these were on nuclear magnetic resonance. There are lots of textbooks on nuclear magnetic resonance, including a very nice one by my colleague Charlie Slichter, my late colleague at Illinois, and so forth. I hadn't read those, those, those textbooks, and I made a quite conscious decision not to read them, because it seemed to me that what was going on in this experiment was so anomalous and so, so out of the ordinary that it couldn't be any of the things which were handled in these, uh, these texts. So I decided just to try to do it from first principles and was lucky eventually that worked out. Of course, once you've got your solution, then of course you don't want to rush off and publish it without checking that uh, it hasn't been known for 100 years and sometimes you'll find it has. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter it's been known for 100 years. You did it yourself. Um, almost certainly you would have learned something that you would not have learned had you, had you just read the existing literature. Now, point three is don't... Um, I don't feel that any honestly conducted piece of research is going to be wasted. You may feel that uh, you've got had this research project and it's uh, just sort of run into the ground. You know, the experiment just didn't work or the theory didn't give the, the result which it sort of, you thought it ought to give or whatever. But any, anyway, you, you had to basically abandon it. Well, don't just leave it there. Write it up. Write it up carefully. Put it away in a drawer. I would bet that 10, 15 years down the road it will come back and help you out in some perhaps apparently totally different problem. Uh, that happened to me um, when I um, worked on two-band superconductors during my postdoc year in Japan. 
it turned out that the, I, I was working and uh, what had triggered my interest in this subject was a particular experiment which seemed to show that um, particular metal, niobium, was a two-band superconductor. So I went away and did the theory concerning that. A few months later, second experiment came along and showed it wasn't really a two-band superconductor after all. So at first sight, my work was totally wasted. But no, I, I did write it up, I put it away and, um, uh, and remembered it. And, and eight years later, when the helium-3 problem came up, that was in some sense the key to solving that. Fourth piece of advice, make things simple. If you possibly can, don't look for the most elegant or the, um, uh, the most sophisticated way of describing a phenomenon. This is really for the theorists, so if people are going to be theorists, I guess, but try to find some simple idea which is, uh, which is equivalent, even though it may not, not look as, as elegant as the more sophisticated forms of, again, helped in my own work. My, my first work on, or my first uh, non-trivial work on uh, superfluid helium-3 before it was experimentally discovered, I started off doing it with very highly sophisticated Green's function field theoretic formalism. And I got a particular result which I didn't understand. And, I mean, I could have just rushed off and published that result. But I thought, no, you know, I don't, I'm not understanding it. I have to find something simpler. And so, so I worked at it a bit and eventually I did find, find a way of putting it which was much, much more straightforward and simple. In the meanwhile, my Russian colleagues were typically were working away with these high-powered Green's functional formalisms, and they basically discovered the same result, but they didn't, they didn't realise they discovered it. Um, so um, anyway, so that's that. And finally, I think in some ways the most important piece of advice, I mean, assuming that um, you're thinking of going into... Um, academia or possibly in high school teaching rather than, say, industry. And if that's the case, then whatever else you do, then take your teaching at least as seriously as you take your research. That's going to be not just good for, for your students, it's going to be good for your research also. I find that many of my um, most fruitful ideas have at least indirectly come out of courses I've taught, both at the undergraduate and postgraduate um, levels. So remember, whatever else you remember, you're not just a researcher, you are a teacher. Well, Tony, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I'm so thankful that you joined us today. Well, it's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you. thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Perimeter Institute is a not-for-profit charitable organization that shares cutting-edge ideas with the world, thanks to the ongoing support of the governments of Ontario and Canada, and thanks to donors like you. Thanks for being part of the equation.